Good morning. My name's Drew. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to be with you. Great to be back after two weeks of being away. I've missed you, and I've looked forward to worshiping with you again, so it's very good to see you. Last week, we began a new sermon series through the book of First Peter. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to the passage that Russ just read for us. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 21. You may recall that Peter began this letter by singing the praises of the God who has given us such a great salvation. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If you're a Christian, this is what has happened to you. You've been born again. You've been given a new start, a new family. You've been given a new identity. And that's just one way of talking about it. The Bible, seen as a whole, gives us an entire spectrum of metaphors, a kaleidoscopic, inexhaustibly rich storehouse of images to help us describe just what has happened to us in Jesus. So it shouldn't surprise us when Peter gives us yet another image in verse 18. He says, you were ransomed. Now, the word ransomed, that's a word that brings up for us all sorts of negative associations. Kidnappings, hostages, mediocre Mel Gibson movies of the 90s. (laughs) But for for Peter, this is a beautiful word. To be ransomed is to be bought back, to be redeemed, to be liberated, to be brought back home again. And that's something to celebrate. You can sense it in Peter's own style of writing. He's celebratory. But what exactly does Peter mean when he says that we were ransomed? What does he mean by that? This morning, I say we find out, and we'll do that by asking three questions. How have we been ransomed? What have we been ransomed from? And what have we been ransomed for? How have we been ransomed? What have we been ransomed from? And what have we been ransomed for? First, how have we been ransomed? And notice Peter's answers in verses 18 and 19. You were ransomed, he says, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Peter's drawing deeply from the well of Israel's history. He's talking about the sacrificial lamb that was sacrificed at the Jewish festival of Passover. 
It was the holiday that celebrated how God had ransomed, liberated his people from slavery in Egypt. And now, Peter says, God's ransomed us too. He paid the ultimate price for us, the precious blood of his own son. But let's be honest for a moment. Doesn't this concept make us a little bit uneasy? How is this not a striking example of a bloodthirsty God worshipped by a primitive society? How is this not simply an echo of Homer's The Iliad when the gods wouldn't let King Agamemnon sail to Troy until he first sacrificed his daughter? Why exactly are we celebrating this again? Let's start with this. If you love a person whose life is all put together, uh, who has no major needs, it costs you nothing. Right? It's wonderful. When that happens, life is like the weather we experienced yesterday. <laughs> Happiness and sunshine. But if you ever try to love someone who has real needs, someone who's in trouble or persecuted or emotionally wounded, it's going to cost you. And it's exhausting because the only way they're going to start filling up emotionally is if somebody loves them. And the only way to love them is to let yourself be emotionally drained, to let some of your fullness, some of your life, somehow depart from you and enter into them. This is when all the teachers and social workers and mental health care workers start nodding their heads. This is when all the nursing moms start to feel a bit vindicated. The truth is, if you're going to really love someone, if you're going to care for them and be present for them and help them finally to stand up on their own two feet, it's going to take sacrifice. That's what love is. It's sacrifice. It's self-sacrifice. And this is where the God of the Bible is so radically different from the primitive gods you and I read about in World Civ. It's this jarring notion that he is love. And not just that, but that he's desperately in love with us and with the world he's made. You see, the ancients, they understood, they understood the idea of the wrath of God. They understood the idea of justice. They understood the idea of debt and punishment, but the idea that never entered their minds, the idea that Homer never even dreamed of was that God would come and pay it himself. So Peter uses this word ransom unashamedly. In the death and resurrection of Jesus, God has somehow transferred 
all of the evil of this world, ours included, onto himself. He's paid the price, suffered the injustice, and liberated us to new life. Why? Because we're precious to him. He made us for friendship with him. He loves us. And the cross shows us that nothing, not even death itself, has the power to separate us from him. We've been ransomed. That's the fire in Peter's belly. That's the deep source of Peter's Easter joy. He's practically brimming with it in this opening chapter of of this letter. But it also leads us to another question, our second question. If that's how we've been ransomed, then what exactly have we been ransomed from? Look again with me at verse 18. Peter says, You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. It's a curious phrase, isn't it? Futile ways. Another translation might be empty way of life, empty ways of life. And when you add to that verse 14, the passions of your former ignorance, you have quite the roast going on here. Now, some people have wondered about whether Peter's talking to Jews or Gentiles, the the Gentiles being former pagans. As in, Um, Is Peter pointing the finger at Jewish legalism or pagan debauchery? But really, that's a secondary issue. Bottom line, we know that the early church was incredibly diverse. And even if a particular church were predominantly Jewish, there were bound to be some Gentiles sitting in the back row. So what Peter seems to be talking about, and and this is where we come in, is the empty way of life that we inherit from our culture by second nature. Modern psychology tells us that only about 5% of what we do in a given day is the outcome of conscious, deliberate choices. The other 95% we do are managed below the surface through habits. For example, show of hands, how many of you failed your first driving test? Are you kidding me? It's just me? Come on. Oh, that you cheated. It's impossible. The whole system is rigged. <laughs> I, I'm, uh, I'm not bitter. It's just that... It's, it's just that young drivers, not 27, but young drivers have to think about every aspect. I need to check my mirrors. Push the right pedal to go. Turn signals on the left. Must remember to check my blind spot. Push the left pedal to stop with the right foot. That's the key, isn't it? Now let's think about your own commute this morning. Do you even remember it? Parents of young children, 
Were you even watching the road? Stop hitting your brother. Don't talk back to your father. Spill that smoothie and you're a dead man. And before you know it, you've arrived at 292 North Liberty Street without even giving a passing thought to the mechanics of driving, much less your speed. And that's because you've been immersed in this practice. It's become a habit. And by the time you actually get your license, you can pretty much drive without thinking about it. I had a friend of mine who said he drives better with curly fries in between his legs. (laughs) I doubt that. And Peter's saying, that's how we often live. We don't even think about it. We just fall into the orbit, we're drawn into the orbit of whatever cultural narrative we're born into. There's the identity narrative that Aubrey talked about last week. To find yourself, look into yourself. The truth narrative, only I know what's right for me. The freedom narrative, I can live however I want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. The enlightenment narrative. Science has all the answers. The history narrative. You're on the wrong side of history. Which of these have you fallen into? Teenagers, do you really think that your parents haven't faced what you're facing? Do you really think that You have all the answers? Professors, do you really think that technology has brought us into the new dawn? How do you deal with the rampage of chemical weapons? Men, do you really think you're not hurting anybody when you look at pornography? These are the narratives Peter says, that we were in bondage to, but we've been ransomed from. And it's not because all of them have zero merit in and of themselves, zero truth value to them. But it's because these ways of thinking and living, they don't lead to life. They actually make us less and less human. They lead us to idols This winding road that you take in these narratives, they lead to false gods that can't and won't deliver on the promises that they make to you. And they leave you disappointed. So Peter says, you've been ransomed from those things. So what if you weren't brought up in the church? So what if you had a crummy past? It doesn't matter. You've been rescued You've been grafted into Israel's story now. Jesus has given you a new life, a new purpose, a new destiny. So follow him and keep following him out of slavery and into life, true life, meaningful life. And what what will that journey 
look like? Where exactly will Jesus be leading us? Well, let's ask our third and final question. What have we been ransomed for? Peter gets a running start on this one. But it says, if everything in the letter comes to a halt at verses 15 and 16, as he who called you is holy, Peter says, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Can't you just sense the weight of that statement? This is a drop-the-mic kind of moment. It almost makes you want to bow or sit and ponder it for a while. We've been ransomed for holiness. That's our ultimate vocation. God has set us, has set us apart. God has chosen us and cut us out of the world like a newspaper article and set us aside for a special use to be like him in every way. But of course, these days, holy is a bad word. Um, people use it as an insult. Oh, you're so holy. So let's think about this. What exactly does it mean to be holy? What does holiness actually look like? Let's look at three features, three identification markers of holiness. First, holiness is not critical, but charitable. It's not critical, but charitable. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, a century after Peter wrote this letter, there was a philosopher named Celsus. Uh, he was one of Christianity's biggest and most important critics. And in one of his writings, he said basically that what held Christians together was their negation of the world, was their complaining. He said that Christians were so fascinated with rejecting what everyone holds in common that if everyone ended up embracing the faith, they would leave it. <laughs> now, is, is everyone just getting that? <laughs> now, we all know the Christians that Celsus is talking about. And from time to time, we've all probably been those Christians that Celsus is talking about. Always criticizing the world and talking about how different we are. Of course, the solution isn't to stop being different. It's just to stop basing our identity around that. What binds Christians together is the positive example of Jesus Christ. It's the call to be holy before God. Peter says, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Does that mean we'll be different? Yes, it does but only because we just happen to be different because we serve a radically different God. You know, it's interesting. Peter doesn't even talk about 
being critical of the world. If we're to be critical of anything, it's of ourselves. He says in verse 14, Do not be conformed, not to the world. That's Paul. That's another sermon. But to the passions of your former ignorance. In other words, don't be like you used to be. And then in verse 18, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. That doesn't mean we can't be critical. and We need to be of the world. It just means that our primary attention should be of experiencing transformation ourselves. And if that's our priority, you know, maybe the world will actually want to listen to what we have to say. Second, holiness is not withdrawn, but engaged. Holiness is not withdrawn, but engaged. Think back to our Old Testament reading from Leviticus 19. We just read a snippet of it. We could have read the whole thing. But that's where Peter gets that phrase, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And Leviticus often gets the reputation of a nitpicky law book, a book that kept Israel out of the world and confined to their own little tribe. But did you listen to what was read? Here of all places, we see that holiness extends into the nooks and crannies of everyday life. Family and community respect, religious loyalty, economic relationships. These are all through Leviticus 19. Workers' rights, social compassion, judicial integrity, neighborly attitudes and conduct, distinctiveness, sexual integrity, exclusion of the idolatrous and the occult, racial equality, commercial honesty. It's all there. This is a holiness of engagement, not of withdrawal. A little over a century ago, there was a Catholic defender of the faith, G.K. Chesterton. And he wrote one time about the difference between Christian holiness and Buddhist holiness. He said, go to a Buddhist temple... And the images of their saints will almost always have their eyes shut. But go to a Gothic cathedral, and the saints' eyes are wide open. The Buddhist, he says, is looking with a peculiar intentness inwards. A Christian is staring with a frantic intentness outwards. Don't get me wrong. Your quiet times with God in the mornings are essential. Be still and know that he is God. Sit in silence with him. Close your eyes. Light a candle. Take a deep breath. Do all of that stuff. Don't neglect it. It's so important. Just don't confuse it with holiness. It's not about what you do when you're by yourself. It's about the way you live and behave when you're out in the world. Are your eyes open? If your image were painted in a Gothic cathedral, what would you be doing 
And you know, this is one of the reasons our church prioritizes being downtown. It's not because you can't be holy in the suburbs. You most certainly can. But there's just something about week after week coming downtown and having our eyes opened to the needs of our city. That inspires us to be holy. God calls us to be holy. So keep your eyes open. Finally, holiness is not gloomy, but hopeful. Holiness is not gloomy, but hopeful. I heard someone say a couple years ago, gloomy religion is the devil's business. And why is that? It's because that sort of stuffy, overly serious approach to God, it just doesn't do justice to the resurrection. Period. Peter says in verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you hear that? Hope. Joy. They're totally compatible with holiness. They're actually the essence of it. I spent last week in study and prayer at a Catholic monastery. And it was one of the richest experiences I've ever had. I'd love to tell you more about it sometime. But I have to say, there was one part of my experience that, well, it just bugged me. Before every meal, which was in silence, by the way, it was lovely. (laughs) Before every meal we would say this responsive prayer. It was, the meek, it was the week immediately after Easter. It's called the Easter octave, the eight days of Easter. And so the prayers had to do with Jesus' resurrection. And the superior, the leader of the monks, would stand up at the beginning of the meal and say, just like this, this is the day the Lord has made. Alleluia, alleluia. And everyone would respond, just staring at the floor, let us rejoice and be glad. Alleluia, alleluia. Now, like I said, I've got to couch this. This was one of the richest experiences I've had. These men have devoted their whole lives to prayer. They've memorized the Psalms. I'm not questioning anyone's faith here. It's just that I'm hearing that every day and I'm thinking, what's going on here? Like, is the food really that bad? (laughs) Hello? Jesus just rose from the dead. The God who created the world, time and space and physics and all that stuff I'm really glad somebody else takes care of. He was dead for three days. And just when it was certain that evil had gotten the upper hand and darkness was reigning, he just got up. He folded his clothes and he got up. Jesus rose from the dead. It's Easter. We're still celebrating. So parents, do you want to be holy? Say yes to your children way more than normal. Just for this season. (laughs) Lent will come back and you can make up for lost time. (laughs) Bosses, do you want to be holy? 
Let the tardy person on Monday slide. Business women and men, throw in a little extra something in that next transaction. South Louisianans call that lanyap. It's free. This is the time for celebration and generosity and joy and hope. Wow, is there hope. If God can make a Roman cross look that good, just imagine what he can do to the Grand Canyon and to Bach and to couples figure skating (laughs) and to the peacock and to that incredible Ethiopian pour-over coffee that they have at Black Sheep right now. (laughs) If God raised Jesus from the dead, and he did, then all creation is coming with him. And all of your crosses, all of your sufferings, the crippling illnesses, the insecurities, the doubts, the debts, the death, they'll all be caught up in a whirlwind of resurrection and the renewal of all things. Jesus is making everything new, just as he promised. And one day, you and I, we're going to watch it happen, finally and decisively, right before our eyes. So let's set our hope fully on that day, on that grace. Thanks, Peter, for that phrase. That's what we're going to do. And until then, let's be holy, just like Jesus, who even now is dancing with the angels in pure, unending Easter joy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.